0: And welcome to episode 61 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. This is your guide to observing the moon. I'm Chris and joining me as usual is Shane and we are amateur astronomers. That means we do astronomy just for the love of it. And this podcast is one way that we share that love for astronomy uh, with you. I also volunteered to teach non-credit month-long or semester, semester-length semester astronomy courses at the University of Regina, and that's where we we live, that's where I live, that's where Shane lives. And Shane, you are one of my frequent guest lecturers. I think you are my most frequent guest lecturer when I'm teaching my course, so thank you.
1: Do I, do I get any kind of like sew-on badge that I can put on my, <laughs> my jacket, or
0: <laughs> it what have I earned here? <laughs> I wasn't prepared for that, but I'll tell you what I did find this week. This is not in the notes, but I did find a Mars pandemic mask. And maybe I'll, maybe I'll see if I can buy one of those for you. <laughs>
1: uh, I'm, uh, <laughs> uh, that's okay. I appreciate this. Okay. <laughs>
0: All right. Good stuff. So I'm really excited about this, um, this particular episode, um, because, uh, back in the spring we rebooted our podcast. So we used to do a, a podcast, um, the, the both of us, sometimes just me. And I think we ended up doing like in total, maybe a dozen or less episodes, somewhere around eight or 12 episodes. I can't remember the exact number because we, we would, we would set them up. And I think it was too much work. It was like at least too much work for me. Mm-hmm. And I think that's uh, where, where at least uh, I, I didn't pass the grade and, and we end up uh, sort of shelving it at that time because we, we were just, uh, we made it too, challenging out of the gate. But when we rebooted this, and we started it in the early days of the pandemic, um, one of the things we talked about was getting on as regular podcasters for the 365 days uh, of astronomy community. Mm-hmm. And this is an astronomy podcast. And I've personally been listening to this since it began back in 2009 was, uh, I think the, the brainchild of uh, Dr. Pamela Gay, Um, And uh, they've they've kept it running since 2009. And it's sort of become uh, a really interesting collection of astrophysics and what to observe in the sky and all things generally astronomy and geeky. And um, as we've gone forward through this, um, this this new reboot uh, and calling it the actual astronomy podcast, um, we've been uh, featured on there a couple of times. And now we're slowly becoming uh, regular contributors. And, and, you know, I'm really looking forward to to that coming up over the next month or so. Yeah, it's super exciting. And, you know, it's a really neat concept for a podcast because,
1: um, you know, most podcasts are, you have creators that, you know, record the content and they put it out and they rinse and repeat that for whatever, you know, frequency of episodes that they drop. Um, but 365 Astronomy podcast doesn't really create any of their own content, but they provide a like an aggregate source, and they have a whole bunch of subscribers. Um, and and I love the um, kind of the variability and, and the, you know, the different perspectives and topics that you end up hearing, uh, if you subscribe to that podcast, it's, uh, it's such a cool concept. I love it.
0: Yeah, so do I. And I think where we're, we kind of hope to make uh, the contribution. Like, we're not professional astronomers at all. Though, you know, I always say that I do teach an astronomy course at a university. So, some people may think that I have some sort of expertise, but I, I'm a volunteer uh, educator. Um, I have uh, like a certificate in adult teaching, um, but um, it, it's a volunteer position and it's non credit. So, people aren't taking any course in science they're ever going to take from me. They're not going to be able to, to use that for anything other than their own personal uh, enjoyment of of the night sky. So, um, you know, and that's what what you and I are really doing here is is trying to sort of share share that love. And although a lot of the other podcasts on uh, 365 Days of Astronomy will talk about, you know, sometimes what you can see in the nighttime sky. And, and one thing I really like about, like, when Comet Neowise was around, uh, some of the podcasts were talking about them. And they would have like the astrophysicist on talking about like the astrophysics of the comets and stuff like that. And that is awesome. I love hearing that. Um, You and I probably aren't going to talk that much about like the astrophysics of a comet. But we're going to talk about um, how to find it and what you can actually really expect to see because we are experienced Amateur astronomers, and uh, and that's really what we're trying to trying to sort of bring to uh, to the whole world of podcasting. There just isn't as much um, information out there on on the experience of the actual observing uh, of the nighttime sky. So I'm I'm really excited to be to be going down down this path.
1: Yeah, me too, me too. Um, you know, you and I love the visual astronomy, and and I think a lot of people
0: um, out
1: there. Um, you know, I think everybody is a visual astronomer to a certain degree. You know, we all look up at the sky, uh, we all see bright objects like the moon. Um, and I think it's fascinating to, you know, continue to go down that path. And, you know, one of the things I hope that we convey throughout all of our podcasts and, you know, I'm glad that you, how you introduce us is we're just two amateurs that like to look at the sky, we have yeah. other day jobs, um, and the reason I like that is, is this is a very accessible thing to do. Like when I first got involved in astronomy, I had a little bit of a fear that this was like a exclusive club where you needed, a, you know, a certain academic degree in order or to a special astronomy. handshake. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and really, it's it's, it's not, not that hard. Yeah, you know, no. if, if you have binoculars, um, you, you don't even need binoculars. You really just need your two eyes. And a little bit of a guidebook, like an atlas of some kind to yeah. show you where the objects are. And you, you're you an amateur astronomer, you know, and, yeah. and it, it's pretty easy to get into. So I hope that's what people uh, uh, kind of hear as an underlying theme in our podcasts is, is that astronomy can be done by anybody and its uh, it shouldn't be an intimidating hobby.
0: So based on that, Shane, what is one of the easiest things that somebody can see even if they're just starting it and might already be familiar with it, what's one of the easiest things somebody can see in the nighttime sky that we're going to talk about today?
1: Well, it's the first object that I ever pointed a telescope at and it's the moon. It's the easiest thing to see in the sky. It's huge, you know, and and what's, you know, a little sidebar here, um, just to kind of highlight the point uh, of how the moon is probably the most observed object in the sky is um, I don't have children. You don't have children. But I know a lot of people that have kids. My brothers, uh, people I work with. My sister has six. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) And and they all tell me, like when their five-year-old or their six-year-old sees the moon for the first time, they they become fascinated by it. And then, like, if they're driving in the car... The, the kid will point out, you know, hey, mom and dad, there's the moon and they're, yeah. they're fascinated
0: by it. And it it, yeah.
1: it, it just draws interest uh, from an early age. And I think it kind of progresses throughout our lifetime.
0: Yeah. So I'm going to go off on on two things, not the show notes. But um, the first thing is uh, based on like what you were just saying. Did you see Eric's sketch that he sent out to the Astro Sketchers list today where he was sketching the moon? with his family and uh, using the very first telescope that he owned. I thought that was really cool.
1: No, no, I didn't. I'll have so to when, look for that.
0: Yeah. When you, I just thought that, you know, really fit well with, with what we were doing today. And then with what you just described, I, I thought I would just throw that in, but uh, sort of going back to that, what you say the moon was the first thing that you pointed your telescope at. So, so what did you see when you pointed that first uh, telescope to the moon?
1: Um, you know, it, this is real. I just got goosebumps thinking about it. Yeah. Um, and I, I can't, I don't think words can very accurately describe what the moon looks like through a telescope. Um, it's, it's easily one of the most incredible things I've ever looked at uh, with the amount of detail, uh, the amount of texture, um, varying shades of, uh, you know, gray to very bright, you know, almost whitish colors. Um, it's just an incredible thing to look at and, and, you know, you see photographs from, you know, various probes and, and telescopes and, and, you know, all of the, the science that, that, um, has been directed towards the moon and through a telescope, you see pieces of that. And it's just an incredible thing. Uh, mountains, craters, craterlets, um, on and on and on.
0: Sounds good. So the first thing I want to address when it comes to the moon is there is um, a couple things that make it a little bit of a challenge to understand what you're seeing up there. And that is the business of the difference between the side side reel and the syndonic uh, lunar period. So this always trips me up when I teach about the moon. So. Because the Earth is constantly moving along its orbit and going around the Sun, um, the Moon has to travel a little bit more than like that 360 degree uh, circle to get from one new Moon to the next new Moon as observed from the same point on the Earth. So um, what what happens is the uh, sidereal month is uh, 27 or just over 27 days, while what's called the synonic month, is just uh, 29 and a half days. So uh, that's one of those things, you know, that, that can be a little bit tricky because um, that lunar orbit and the point at which it takes to kind of repeat uh, the lunar phase are, are slightly different. And I, I can often get those tripped up a little bit when, when I'm talking about, you know, um, you know, the, the phases of the moon
1: yeah it it, that's a tricky one you know that's a tricky one to wrap your head around and and it confuses me too um yeah it's uh it's strange
0: yeah so shane is there a dark side of the moon let's let's just deal with that first
1: there's only one dark side of the moon and i think it's a pink floyd album uh the the actual (laughs) lunar moon in the sky does not have a dark side
0: no well i suppose it it you know, the moon is only half illuminated at any one time. So if, there, if there's a dark side, it's constantly sort of rotating around. So it's more like a, a theoretical dark side. But the back side of the moon isn't always uh, dark. Um, but it will be dark. The backside of the moon will be dark when the moon is full. And our sky will right. be opposite, uh, opposite the sun. So um, why is this? So the moon is tidally locked. So we only ever see uh, one side from the earth. But uh, Shane, does this mean that the moon doesn't rotate? No,
1: the moon does rotate
0: uh, very similar to earth. It's just that
1: it's, it's very interesting. The rotation of the moon takes the same length of time as its orbit around the earth. Mm -hmm. So it appears like it never moves, even though it's constantly in motion, just like everything else in space.
0: Okay. So then what we just see, Half of the moon, like throughout the, the orbit? Do we just see like half the moon?
1: No, we, we get to view a little bit more than half. Um, this is known as lunar uh, libration. Um, so the moon kind of tilts in its orbit uh, around the Earth by about five degrees. Um, so this can cause the moon to appear to move a little bit above and a little bit above, below the ecliptic. Um, and as it does this, we get to peek over the southern and northern edge of the moon by about nine percent. So mm-hmm. this allows us to really see about fifty-nine percent of the moon's surface. Mm-hmm. Um, so that libration effect is—it's uh, a neat—it's a neat thing for lunar observers, and it's a, its an important concept to understand because if you really, you know, become addicted to observing the moon. This, this libration effect really uh, enables you to see additional features on the moon uh, if you time everything right.
0: Yeah. You know what else was 59%? I don't. Uh, that was like my grade in mathematics during high school. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is no joke. That's no, no joke. Okay. So, so what do you like to observe um, when you're looking at the moon, Shane?
1: Ooh, like my favorite object or... well
0: like just in general like so are you yeah. using your eye binoculars okay. telescopes and when you're using those things like what uh, what do you yeah. like to see
1: yeah okay um well you know with my eyes what i always try to do is like so there's like especially if i reference say a full moon or or uh, close to a full moon um, when I'm looking at it with my eyes, I'm always trying to see um, w- um, what I can make out for dark features versus the lighter features of the moon, because mm-hmm. uh, there's these mares, these large, you know, which I think is Latin for sea, um, that are kind of a like a darker area, um, and it's kind of neat to see if you can like trace out those shapes. Mm-hmm. Um, now, one thing I've noticed, like if if you're looking at the moon uh, through a telescope or, or any object actually through a telescope, um, if you're using really high magnifications through your telescope, when you take your eye away from the eyepiece and you just look at the moon without any optical aid, I feel like I can see way more detail. And I, mm-hmm. I think it's because your are stressed, like your eyes really working hard at those high magnifications that when you kind of relax it, um, it's engaged, you know, like it's engaged for observing and, and it's more sensitive to light and you can see a lot of interesting details. Um, but let me, let me talk a little bit about um, uh, through a telescope. Um, my favorite thing, bar none, is uh, Montes, uh, I'm probably going to say this incorrectly, but Opinionists, uh, Um Opinionists?
0: Yeah, yeah, sure. We'll go with yeah. that. You're, I think, I think they're actually named <laughs> after, and, and I only know this because I spent some time in Italy, um, but I think there's actually a Pennines in, uh, in Italy.
1: Okay, yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Um, so this is a mountain range on the moon, and it's an extensive mountain range. Some of these peaks um, are over 5,000 meters, um, and it's best seen at first quarter and last quarter moon. Um, mm-hmm. now what I like about this is, is you're looking at sort of like, uh, an earth like feature, but on a, a, you know, a body in space, um, this, this mountain range would be, you know, probably similar to the mountain ranges on earth, you know, the Rocky mountains, the Himalayans, that type of thing. Um, and through a telescope, it's just incredible detail that you can see. Uh, there's the Apennine bench, um, It extends for a long period. Uh, I I don't know the actual length of the range, but wow, Um, there's just so much to see there. And um, if you can identify the curve of uh, Rima Hadley, uh, it's very near the Apollo 15 landing site. Now, you know, to be very clear, no telescope will show you any of the Apollo gear or, or anything that's been left behind on the moon. You will not see that. Um, but it's just really neat in my mind when I look at that area of the moon to think that Apollo 15 landed there. And I just think that that's really cool.
0: Yeah. I was just looking at Apennine is at 17,700 feet in elevation. Wow. And then I think, yeah, I think the bench you're referring to is like around 130 kilometers or 80 miles long.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's huge and yeah. um, very resolvable in a telescope, like a modest telescope will show that very, very well.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. Cool. Yeah. How about you, Chris? So, so there's a few things. Um, one of the things that I, I really do enjoy about the moon is that it's really about the only planetary surface that we get a good look at. Mm -hmm. through our our instruments from earth. So typically when we're looking at, at Mars, we have to realize that we're seeing, and we we did an episode on this, um, what are called albedo features. So we're just really seeing contrasting light and dark features. And there may be some um, pretty tight correlation between what we're seeing there and and the surface, like with the polar caps, you you are really seeing the polar caps and surface major and that sort of thing. But a lot of the time you're just seeing, um, sort of the, the harmonizing of many service features into sort of one light or dark uh, region. But on the moon, either you see that with your your unaided eye or naked eye, um, you will actually be able to see like actual craters uh, when you look at it. And any optic will begin to reveal significant details. So mm-hmm. even if you don't own a telescope, like people are listening to this, and this is the one thing, um, when I was teaching a class in August, Um, which was my first uh, pandemic class over Zoom, I said, okay, like how many people have a pair of binoculars? And like, I think like two thirds of the 30 people taking the class had binoculars. So I said, look, just go out. It's going to be clear tomorrow night. Go out and take a look or whatever. Um, And then kind of report back uh, next week, kind of what you see. And people were just blown away (laughs) by what they could see just with a pair of binoculars looking at the moon when it was at about its... uh, I think first quarter phase, uh, on that night. And I really wasn't prepared for, for so many people to provide. I think we end up having the whole class, which was a two hour period. Um, just discussing what people saw through their binoculars. People were so, um, excited about being able to see so much. And like many individuals, they're, they're not using a specialized custom pair of, uh, astronomy binoculars or anything like that. They're just using, uh, whatever was on the back shelf or a pair that, uh, were handed down to them or the head since they were a kid or something, uh, really anything that provides any real magnification like uh, uh, six or seven power or more will really begin to give you lots of detail on the moon. Eh?
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. It, it, more larger aperture, whether it's binoculars or telescopes will continue to show more and more detail, but modest binoculars um, really, really enhance what you're able to see and you, you know, you'll start to see some of the crater detail, um, some of it also has to do with when you're looking at the moon. Mm-hmm. Um, I always like a full moon is impressive, but if I'm actually going to put optics on the moon to observe it, I prefer it to be not full in any of its phases because mm-hmm. where you'll see the most detail is kind of along that edge where the moon, uh, uh kind of loses its illumination. It's called the terminator. Yeah, And at that point, you'll see that that there'll be a lot of shadowing that occurs on the features and that that's the best area to look.
0: Yeah. And so that Terminator is just simply the demarcation point uh, between, like you said, the light uh, sunlight illuminated portion of the moon and the um, more or less unilluminated portion of the moon, although sometimes there can be some illumination on the uh the part of the moon that isn't getting direct sunlight because sunlight will hit the earth and then reflect back uh, on onto the moon uh, causing us to see what's called uh, earth shine yeah know. yeah
1: that's a that's a neat thing too to
0: observe yeah yeah that's pretty neat so I, I am my observing on the moon and, and I guess I have to kind of put a little bit of a caveat in here like I often say I'm not a lunar observer kind of in the traditional sense so as we go through this, Um, People are really going to see what I mean by that, um, because I do a lot of unaided eye observing of the moon. And now most people are going to say, hey, like, so do I or whatever. But um, I've kind of taken that to a whole different level um, and done uh, quite a lot of sketching of the unaided eye moon and had a lot of um, in-person and Internet conversations with observers from all over the world. and we're using a few a few sources for that, but um, I've done a lot of sketching of different features on the moon to say exactly what is and and maybe is not, or or how things are are visible without any optics on the moon, because uh, that really hasn't been been investigated uh, as thoroughly as as one might imagine.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's very interesting.
0: Uh, One of our references, I think you're going to tweet this out, if I'm not mistaken, is the uh, Royal Astronomical Society of Canada Explore the Moon program. And uh, I put the link there in in the show notes, Shane, for the binocular uh, version, but there's also a lunar uh, telescopic version as well. And it's uh, it's a program put out by uh, my friend Dave. And, uh, I did, I did do a very small amount of work on this very, very small amount just to, just to test his, uh, his way of doing this. I'm not going to get into it here. Uh, but he kind of developed a unique way of, um, determining what is visible on the moon when, which is a little bit, that's really like the main challenge I found anyway, with, with observing the moon. Um, and he's kind of figured that out and he's given people, um, you know, this really basic and accessible program uh, to work through. And it's free. People can complete this. Uh, I think you can apply to the RESC. I should know this among on the observing committee. Um, but I think you can apply and, and get the certificate, even if, if you're not not a member. Um, and then we have some more advanced uh, programs uh, there as well. Um, but the, the, the PDFs anyway, um, and the actual program, uh, Dave has made uh, free to all. Um, so it's, it's not anything you have to become a member to, to use, um, and there's no special code or anything to put in. So you can just, if you, if you don't mind, send out that via Twitter it would be awesome.
1: Yeah, for sure. It's a PDF link, so you can download it, print it out if you like. Yeah. Uh, and I'll also tweet out the, the telescopic version as well. It Great. Uh, lists, uh, well, I think it's over a hundred objects to observe on the moon. So yeah, it can keep people busy for a long, long time.
0: Yeah. It, it's a really nice program. I haven't completed them, but I, I did sort of trial run because I was wondering, he does this business of um, when different things are going to be visible on the moon. I'm not going to go into it. That's that's sort of the real technical part. And I think it's it's a really nice sort of secret sauce in how to observe the moon. And so you just need to determine when the moon is full or off a certain quarter. And then um, you know what's going to be visible on whatever given night you're out and the moon is up. And then you can kind of work through through the lunar program, uh, using that technique. And that's all I was doing. Cause I wondered if that would actually work and it does work, but he explained it to me and it's still the same for me. I struggled to explain it to you, uh, Shane. Um, it sounds more complicated than it is, but basically all you do is you read through it and then you just need to figure out when, uh, when the moon was full or new or the first quarter, whatever it is. And then, um, you just do this calculation Uh, it's very, very simple. Like you just subtract, like how many days from whatever point that was, uh, to the day that you're on. And then boom, uh, you know, what's going to be visible and you just turn to that section and, and you can work your way through it and includes maps and discussion and other resources you can use. It's just a really, really nice guide. Can't recommend it enough. Yeah. Yeah. It's excellent. Yep. For sure. So tell me about the surface of the moon, Shane.
1: Well, um, it's very old. It's about 4 billion years old, uh, according to geological records, um, which the solar system, I believe the age is around 6 billion or, or right around that mark. Mm So, you know, the moon's been around for a long time. Um, it doesn't have any active molten mantle core like on earth. So there's no plate tectonics, uh, shifting around. Um, there's no atmosphere on the moon. So there's no erosion uh, due to wind or rain. Um, so largely what we see remains that way until it's disrupted by some kind of impact. Mm-hmm. Um, but essentially, there's, there's two main types of features that we see on the moon. Um, so I've, I referenced one, which is mare. Um, and then the other feature are the craters there. So Mare is uh, the given name to the large lava plains uh, and the most striking features that we can see from Earth. And a lot of that you can just see with your own eyes, mm-hmm. without any optical aid. Uh, Galileo was the one who named them, and it means sea, uh, but if it's unclear, he thought these were actual seas, or sorry, he was, it was unclear to him if these were actual seas or if it was just a fanciful name.
0: Yeah, like it. Like when I was going through this, I was I was surprised to see I didn't know that until we were kind of yeah. kind of setting this up. Um, but it, it it's not clear if he thought they were Cs or whether he was just creating uh, the name Mare uh, just to give them uh, some sort of label, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, It's that's that's very interesting. Now these features are you know, uh, have been perceived as different things. So some people see a lady in the moon when they look at the mare, just with an unaided, uh, view, mm-hmm. uh, the one that I see more regularly is a lunar rabbit, uh, to me, mm-hmm. that one, like I could see the ear and kind of the head, it, that one makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but the mare are younger uh, than the mountain uplands and the regions, um, uh, were created about 4 billion years ago during a period of large asteroid impacts which caused a little bit of the molten material in the moon to break out and flood onto the surface. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, So, you know, often the mares are a lot smoother and have, uh, have less uh, like meteor impacts or Mm -hmm. or less craters than the surrounding areas, just because it's, it's a little bit newer soil, if you will, because of that, um, that molten material that came up and sort of blanketed
0: those regions. Yeah. So when it comes to the crater features, like what can you see with, with the craters through your telescope?
1: Well, you, you can obviously see the ring, like the outer ring, which is a big ridge. Um, you'll see kind of the crater walls that descend a little bit into the moon. And then often right in the middle of a crater is a, uh, like a, I don't know, for lack of a better word, like a large boulder or, or kind of a, a central point that you can usually uh, detect. Um, and then there can be all kinds of rays, uh, like going out from the crater as a result of the impact. Um, uh, so the rays are ejecta uh, that spread out in these long, narrow lines, uh, when material fell back onto the lunar surface. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, sometimes too, actually. And this is one of the neat things with the moon is you'll look at a, a large crater, but oftentimes inside the crater are more smaller craters you know and, and many impact points so the level of detail just it's almost like one of those nesting dolls that you know you, it just yeah. keeps producing more and more and more
0: yeah cool so I've done a lot of this I needed eye or naked eye observing a, a, on the moon I wouldn't mind talking about this uh, for a moment because this is really my real uh, lunar observing um, experience which, uh, sort of for for listeners of our program might be like that's interesting because you know I own all these telescopes, um, but back in 2016, my friend Clark and I ran a, a lunar observing program uh, that was a little bit unusual because we just didn't use any optics at all. And and what happened? I can't remember. Um, whether it was both of us or, or which one of us came up with it, but there had been a couple recent uh, articles. This is about five or six years ago. Um, one was in Sky and Telescope by Bob King, and another was in Sky News by Gary Serenik. But but I can't remember if we had read those or I had read them first, or whether I just started observing uh, the moon and, and sketching it. So what I was trying to do is I had recently taken up astronomical sketching, as you know, uh, around that time. And I was looking for like a different challenge. And so I thought, well, the moon is uh, visible like from from my yard during colder months. And I'm just going to kind of work through uh, several lunar phases and do some sketching of it. Um, And that was a a different uh, thing to do because um, another friend, Randall, uh, sent me all these historical resources. And it turned out that not too many people had tried to, uh, to sketch the moon going back, um, to the 1400s, uh, Jan van, uh, Aik, uh, he did a painting. It was a religious painting and he put, um, a naked eye rendition of the moon, uh, sort of behind individuals who were, who were, uh, you know, uh, being persecuted and, uh, it's a very accurate representation, kind of like that man uh, in the moon showing just the, the bright and darker areas of the mare, um, but it is a very accurate representation. Uh, and then we have uh, in the early 1500s, uh, Leonardo's charcoal sketches um, of the moon. And then later on, uh, just before uh, you know, the invention of the telescope or when, when the astronomical telescope was pointed to the nighttime sky, um, English physicist, William Gilbert, uh, drew some, drew some, uh, again, uh, you know, sort of man on the moon uh, type uh, of sketches. But, um, you know, we, we started to think, well, now that we know, you know, and, and there's sort of no turning back the clock on our lunar observing through binoculars or telescopes or whatever, we know as soon as we point the most basic uh, optic at the moon, you can start to see craters and like you said, mountain ranges and lava planes. And like, you can really get a good view. Um, but sort of with that in mind, sort of with your, with your mind polluted by, um, what is actually sort of below the, the simply the albedo or bright and dark features, like what can you actually see? Um, so my friend Clark and I kind of started going back and forth and, and made a few, uh, findings. So, um, at first, you know, you just see those bright and dark features. And then um, another observer that we observed with, he sent us a nice sketch of the uh, of the moon there. Sorry, am I not sharing? I'm going to share this with you just so you can see what I'm...
1: Oh, what I'm following you. along
0: in the okay. in the notes. All right. yeah. yeah, all right, good stuff. Um, but our friend Mike, he had made a nice drawing of the moon from, uh, from Montreal. And then I went through and did a sketch, and I labeled, I think I ended up labeling... Something like uh, 24 or 30 bright and dark features. So, all the major features like uh, the Sea of Rains, the uh, Sea of Clouds, Lake of Dreams, Sea of Serenity, um, Sea of Tranquility, Sea of Crisis, like a lot of the places where they land at the Apollo missions, those are all readily, easily visible uh, to the unaided eye. You just kind of need a bit of a, a moon map. And I put the links in the show notes if you want to share those links so people can actually go through. The Sky and Telescope and Sky News uh, articles, mm-hmm. uh, and take a look. I don't. I don't know. You can even send it, like my my very um, sort of detailed uh, sketch of the Moon made in charcoal. Um, and then there's also lots of uh, albedo features. And the one um, that I'm most proud of seeing was uh, Kepler. And so if you scroll down, you'll see that there's. Um, it, it looks. I think it looks. Kind of like what the moon looks like um, when it's, uh, you know, well into its final uh, phases uh, in the morning sky. And the sky was blue and the moon had just like this nice, beautiful sliver. And that sliver was just cutting across uh, near the crater Kepler. Now, Kepler is a relatively small crater. And and although I, I say like this is a sketch of Kepler, I'm not really sketching the crater. Uh, what I'm sketching is the bright area around that crater, which must stick up just a little bit because it seemed to stick out or at least appear to stick out into the, uh, the dark portion of the moon. So uh, it's just fascinating to think that you could see, you know, and I put on the right side, uh, like an actual uh, astrophoto of that crater um, that you can actually see almost like that line like I don't know I don't know what you think, but uh, you can actually see sort of that that brighter area in the dark mare and how that might translate over into uh, into the uh, chalk sketch that I did.
1: Yeah, that is really, really neat.
0: Isn't that yeah, cool very impressive? Yeah yeah so I was really this is one of the I think this is one of the best sketches and I'm not an artist, so I'm really just trying to rep- represent what I was seeing. Uh, and then it kind of looked like, Uh, The rest of the moon was sort of illuminated around the edge, but uh, of course that, that just can't be, it's just simply uh, a matter of perspective uh, and that the the moon is sort of cutting into the bright sky and I think it's a contrasting effect. Um, But you can even see, although the scan isn't that great, you can even see some of the tonal regions um, on, on the lunar surface that is just illuminated uh, by the earth. But uh, that sketch was done after the sun was up too. So it was kind of neat um so what what can you see you can see all these dark marae like we were talking about and then you can see a variety of craters so in bob king's articles he talks about um i think it's uh fernius and sternius or Stevinus, and these are two bright craters that are uh on the early part of the moon when the moon is just going into first quarter and then as we get along to uh to the last quarter, there's Copernicus, uh, Aristarchus, uh, Kepler. you can see things like sinus or uh, rhythm. Uh, and we've we've all been able to see those. But one of the features uh, that he labels and so does uh, Gary Saranek is they label uh, Tico. And I got to say, I've never really been able to see Tico, uh, which is one of the brightest craters on the moon. Um Through a telescope, uh, you can see it quite easily. But unaided eye, um, the whole area just appears bright because there's so much ejecta around Tico that that's just a brighter area. But there's a really bright spot in that bright area, and that's called Cassini's bright spot. Now that is definitely visible, and this is just really uh, a brighter part of the of 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 that. Uh, general region around tico and i think when people say that they're able to see tico with uh you know uh, the tico crater with the unaided eye i think what they're actually seeing is cassini's bright spot because it's really hard to see in a photograph And if you go down to the last photo that i that i put in the show Mm -hmm. notes there um although it looks like it looks like a small bright region um in in a brighter region, how much brighter that is when you actually look at it is well, basically that's the brightest spot on the moon. And when I point it out, like I can point it out to somebody who's never really tried this before, and I'll say, Well, just tell me generally where that brightest spot on the moon is, and uh and people will always point out that that this general region is the brightest spot.
1: Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, another interesting air, or uh, kind of feature of that area of Tico is is the ejector rays that emanate from the crater. Um, they're massive, and it's uh, one of the more striking features on the face of the moon as well.
0: So, have you kind of followed those along through a telescope and, and sort of made observations sort of along those rays because they kind of spread out, and Tico is in the in sort of the bottom uh, southern. Uh, midsection of uh of the moon and so when the moon is about half full you get this giant uh, uh crater right, right along the edge and in fact when galileo first sketched the moon he drew uh tico enormous eh? like he drew it as this giant crater on there it's large but it's not as like i think in in galileo's drawing it almost looks like it's about uh an eighth the the size of the moon almost um but certainly he was, he was just trying to do uh, the, the very first uh, first drawings there. But you've probably made some pretty good observations of Tico through, uh, through your telescopes over time.
1: Yeah, definitely I have. Um, the, the interesting thing, though, that, you know, that I guess maybe I'll, I'll throw out there that people might find a little strange is the moon is actually not something a lot of us amateur astronomers spend a lot of time with. Um, just because when the moon's in the sky, it, it's exceptionally bright and it washes out, you know, a lot of the deep sky objects like galaxies and nebulas that we like to look at. And, yeah. um, you know, as a result, sometimes I don't spend enough time looking at the moon uh, as I should, because it is such an outstanding uh, uh, target and it, it's so dynamic uh, to observe through its phases um, as they progress through the month. Um, but yeah, anyway, to your original question, um, I have looked at those um, ejector rays from Tycho uh, quite a bit, actually, in the past, and uh, they're fascinating.
0: Yeah, and I guess sort of to, to your, your point there, which I think is actually more interesting than my question, is, you know, the moon can appear very bright, and sometimes um, amateur astronomers will really kind of um, not view it in the best light. Uh, because, uh, certainly when the moon is, is full or getting towards full, um, it produces so much, uh, natural light pollution, uh, that it, that it definitely, uh, impacts our observation of, of most other things, uh, apart from the planets in the night sky. Unfortunately, you know, can't see any aurora gets more and more difficult and around full moon, almost impossible to see deep sky objects through the telescope and, uh, you know, it, it kind of just really does wash uh, wash everything out, eh? It does, and
1: you know, maybe another point worth mentioning, Chris, is that um, if you want to observe a galaxy or a nebula, you you do have to leave light pollution to get the best views. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have to head out of the city. Um, and sometimes that adds, uh, another layer of, of complexity or another challenge to overcome to observe. Cause then you have to pack up your gear and travel and all that kind of stuff. The moon, because it is so bright, you do not have to travel outside of a city. You can observe this from your backyard, uh, full of, you know, uh, uh, like lights and, and, and city urban light pollution, and you can still have outstanding observations of the moon. Um, So Mm -hmm. that's kind of a nice thing about the brightness of the moon is that uh, you don't have to travel for it. You can just do it off your balcony if you want.
0: Yeah. As long as you have anything kind of reasonably South facing. Yeah. You, you can really see it. And I mean, yeah, you've described my backyard perfectly. It's very, very badly uh, lit up by local lights and everything. I do get perfect or near perfect horizons though. So that's my, that's my consolation is that if something uh, is high enough high enough up in the nighttime sky to see? Then usually I can get a pretty good view of it uh, from somewhere on my property. Anyway, um, I don't quite live in a parking lot, but <laughs> it kind of almost seems like that at times. Um, but yeah, you know the the one thing about the moon is though, is that it can sure be awfully bright through the telescope. Now, one thing, and I've seen this more and more, I used to do this when I was younger, um, but I see this as like, it must be pushed out on like astronomy hacks or something like that. But more and more people saying, you know, use uh, your sunglasses when you're observing the moon. I don't know if you've you've tried that yet or. Where you're at that?
1: Not not my sunglasses, but you can get these polarizing filters for a telescope, which basically are putting sunglasses uh, on your telescope, uh, yeah. just to reduce the brightness. Um, like I used to own a 12 inch Newtonian telescope, which is a reasonably sized telescope, and um, if I was to look at the moon through that without any kind of like uh, polarizing filter or neutral density filter to reduce right. the brightness. Um, you know that effect you get Chris when you look at a really bright light and then for a little while after that you sort of see black spots of you know the where that light kind of hit your eye.
0: Yeah, the afterimage, I think.
1: yeah. yeah. I would get that very intensely through my 12 inch telescope and looking at mm-hmm. the moon because it gathers so much light and puts it into my eyeball. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would for sure on a large aperture you have to use some kind of filter. And if you have a really large telescope like, not many would have uh, access or own, and like say, a thirty-inch telescope. But like, uh, I f- I forget what size, but right around that thirty-inch can cause permanent damage to your eye from the moon really? because of how bright it is. Yeah. Huh. yeah. I now, didn't know that. Yeah. That's extremely rare, right? Like people yeah. should not be afraid to look at the moon. Um, and in you know my my five-inch telescope and and basically everything I own right now, um, you know I don't worry too much about about the brightness of the moon.
0: Yeah. Um, but people can try wearing, wearing sunglasses or, or using some sort of neutral density filter. I'm actually, I've got my neutral density filter sort of in my shopping cart and I gotta, I gotta pick one up because, uh, yeah, I mean it, it, it can be so, so very bright, eh? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, And the brightness, number one, it's uncomfortable, but number two, it actually can wash out some of the, some of the detail that you're trying to observe. So when you remove some of the light and
0: reduce the brightness.
1: It actually allows you to see a little bit more of the finer details sometimes.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Cool. Cool. So what else on the moon, Shane, do we want to discuss today?
1: Well, um, you know, I think that's all that I have uh, to talk about it, it. Having this conversation actually has reinvigorated um, my desire to get out and observe the moon. Lately, we've mm-hmm. been fascinated by uh, Jupiter and Saturn earlier in the year Right now, um, you know, we're, we're drawn to Mars because it's favorable, uh, very favorable in terms of its uh, position in the sky, as well as closeness to the earth. Um, but I really want to look at the moon now.
0: Yeah. Um, and so with that in mind, and I know when we were starting the podcast today, you took off to grab some books. And I was wondering what lunar observing books uh, you might be able to recommend.
1: Sure, um, if you want to learn just a little bit about the history of the moon and and the exploration of the moon, uh, Patrick Moore on the Moon is an outstanding book for that.
0: Um, Did I borrow want, that from you? I think I'm a, I think you lent that to me. And I, I read have. it. Yeah, yeah, that is it's a good, a fantastic
1: book. book. Yeah, yeah it's
0: that really is good. a really good book. Yeah, because I looked and I don't think I have that on my shelf, and I was like, but I read that book. <laughs> You know, so I was like trying to figure out how that was, or maybe you took my book. Oh, <laughs> geez. Uh, uh, moving on to the next book.
1: No, I think, uh, I think you led it to me. I think you let me that book, yeah. Um, the next one that I'd recommend is the Cambridge uh, Photographic Moon Atlas. Um,
0: I love those Cambridge. I love oh, Cambridge books. Oh, Cambridge yeah. makes some great astronomy books.
1: Yeah, yeah, if you want to learn about um, the features on the surface of the moon and what to look at um, and identify maybe some features that you're looking at, say through your binoculars or your telescope. Um, this is an outstanding reference uh, to have. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it's just kind of fun to look at even on a cloudy night from the couch. Um, mm-hmm. I just love it. And, and kind of in that same vein, another real pretty book to look at is called full moon. Um, oh, okay. Michael light is the author Really really cool is it's just, it's just photos, right? So you open it up and like the first page is you just see like basically, well, I guess you do see a a small image of the moon, but the first real imagery is like fire from a rocket being fired. And then you, you kind of follow this probe. I think it's one of the, yeah, it's Apollo, one of the Apollos. I don't know which one. So it's photographs of them launching and leaving earth's uh, gravity doing some spacewalk stuff. But anyway, it kind of takes you on a space voyage to the moon. Okay. Again, it's all pictorial. There's no words in here. Hmm. And then, you know, orbiting the moon and then landing on the moon. There's hmm. there's some outstanding Apollo photos in this book. Um, so, again, if you're just looking for some eye candy and you're fascinated by the moon, this mm-hmm. one is just outstanding. Um, it, yeah, it, I can't recommend it enough. Lots of outstanding Apollo Photos.
0: Mm-hmm. How about a, a lunar map?
1: Um, so probably the most uh, talked about one amongst amateur astronomers is Rukel's uh, Moon Atlas. Um, although it's out of print um, and it's uh, it's fairly expensive to buy. I think like a, I don't know what the going rate is. Um, you know, probably in at least a hundred, maybe hundreds of dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Sky and Telescope. um, I don't know if they still make them. I should have looked. Um, It's this uh, laminated um, moon map that kind of folds into quadrants. Okay. Um, And it had a lot of, I think they used a lot of Ruckel's imagery and it's outstanding. Yeah. But, um, you know, even with the moon, you know, you and I don't advocate very much for using like a a phone uh, or, you know, a tablet at the eyepiece because of how bright the screens are. Mm-hmm. but when you're looking at the moon um just using like a moon atlas app on your phone uh is a, a great thing to do um it, you know you it's an easy reference and uh it'll help you identify things how about cool, you do you have yeah. any books that you recommend regarding the moon
0: yeah orralls atlas is is probably the best one i know that uh, one of the writers for sky and telescope for a long time was uh, charles Woods. and he uh and anyway he he has a couple of good uh you know, one is like the modern moon, a personal view. And then I think even has, uh, it's called the 21st century uh, moon atlas. I don't own either of those. I have seen them. Uh, the modern moon is, is really nice. And I, and I should say maybe out of print, but uh, often you can find these uh, quite readily used on uh, Astro Bicel, Astromart or Knight's classifieds is probably the best spot now. And, I have the map from the modern moon and, uh, and do use that, uh, has like, I think a hundred of the best features on the moon. It's quite, uh, quite well done. Yeah. It's pretty good. Right on. So do you know, so they, they, you know, and you were talking about some of the space, uh, missions and you know, Neil Armstrong and others went to the moon, but do you know, they, they actually built a nightclub on the moon?
1: I'm not aware of this. No, <laughs> no it,
0: it, it went under cause it had absolutely no atmosphere. Well, with that note, (laughs) (laughs) with that, Shane, how can people stay in touch with us?
1: People can find us on Twitter. We are at Actual Astronomy. Uh, If anybody has questions, we'd love to hear them. We'll respond. And then usually what we do is we save up the questions and do a little bit of a mailbag episode. Mm -hmm. Um, But you can also email us. We are Actual Astronomy at gmail.com. And the last way is just to leave feedback on any of the podcast apps out there that you use. All right. Thanks so much, Shane. Thank you, Chris. And thank you, everybody, for listening.